How do you know you're up to date? When you follow EMS World, you answer that question with confidence. Because when we say EMS World, we mean the whole world of EMS. The remaining question for you is how will you stay up to date? In print, online, at EMS World Expo, the world's largest EMS dedicated conference, and now in a podcast. Welcome to another episode of EMS World Podcasts. I'm your host, Mike McCabe. Today's podcast is sponsored by Graham Medical. Graham Medical is your source for the original Mega Mover portable transport unit product line. Visit GrahamMedical.com for more information. As we start to reemerge from the all-encompassing pandemic preparedness and response, we find ourselves facing many of the same challenges that we did prior to COVID taking over our lives. To say that active shooter mitigation and response is one of the larger challenges would be an enormous understatement. Integrating our response plans with other disciplines and specifically establishing rescue task force capabilities has never been more important. My guest today is Mr. Michael Wright. Michael is a retired captain with the Milwaukee Fire Department. He served with the 82nd and 101st Airborne in the U.S. Army and is a current Air Force Reservist. He is the president of Southeast Tactical and is a subject matter expert in tactical medical operations with an extensive background in establishing integrative response protocols. Mike, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Mike, I was reading through my news feed this morning, ironically, and I read that the U.S. had nine active shooter incidents this weekend alone in a three-day period. That is a scary thought. The fact that we didn't really know is even scarier. You know, we spoke a little bit offline, Mike, and you had mentioned to me that you fear that this year could be the darkest as it relates to active shooter incidents. And you kind of laid out this the reasoning for this, and I was wondering if you can elaborate on that a little bit. Sure, uh, definitely not something I'm proud to share, but it, it's kind of a, the way we're headed. You know, we look at what, what COVID did for us and what happened during 2020. Um, you know, the country became more divided for numerous reasons, which uh, precipitated more fear, which precipitated people buying more guns, and then you have people quarantined and, uh, sequestered per se, and the behavioral health uh, conditions became more illuminated. And then we're going from a target poor environment, which was last year because everyone was at home and not in public spaces, to suddenly we're all emerging into a target rich environment. And um, it's a it's a perfect storm of why we're seeing what we're seeing. And I kind of predicted it, that uh, this is going to be a pretty bad year for this. It's a scary proposition, uh, the way you lay it out, but unfortunately makes all the sense in the world. And it basically harkens back to the question, how prepared are we as an industry, uh, EMS, fire, rescue providers, when it comes to dealing with these types of incidents? Prior to the pandemic, this was a huge topic in our industry, how we were preparing. We had always lived in that type of silo. We were in a vacuum, police trained with police, fire trained with fire, EMS trained with EMS. And I, I think that we started to break through that a little bit, the active shooter situations that we were facing, as I said, prior to the pandemic. Unfortunately, we are a very reactionary type industry where we're dealing with what we have to deal with in that time, in that moment. And the pandemic had taken over everything. And so we kind of took our eyes off of these types of situations. And so the question now is, if you are starting 
to think about this. You're late to the game, right? You know, this has been going on. So not only do we need to get this started if you haven't, but those that have it started, you know, what do we have to do to get ourselves refocused? Well, we have, first we have to understand that this is going from a high-risk, low-frequency event to a high-risk, moderate-frequency event. And, you know, we have to remember that, you know, one of my famous lines is that um, we're at, there is no 912. So 911 is all the public has. And it is, it is incumbent upon us as uh, professionals to coordinate with law enforcement and EMS to get this going. Um, we have to remember that the world has not gotten any better and that we're the last line of defense for the public. How do we get that type of buy? From your experiences, Mike, and I know you, you deal with this in your business and your uh, fire services that, that you were part of. How did you bring those parties to the table to have a productive type of conversation with respect to integrating response protocols? Well, you know, the, the toughest thing for the, the protective services is that we had to detune and retune both professions. So we've had to work on, and this is not just me, uh, work on detuning EMS professionals away from BSI seen safe to BSI seen as safe enough. And then to detune uh, law enforcement from being the aggressors and going in to being escorts in some capacity to help. And just showing the value of the combined efforts of both uh, facets of the team um, and showing that the need is there. Most professionals, once confronted with those options, figure out that this is a pretty good option we should all take together. Well, the need is obviously there. I established the, the rescue task force concept here in Hudson County, here in New Jersey, six years ago. And at that point, it was, you know, this, this huge undertaking, how you were changing and shifting the paradigm as it, as it related to response protocol, specifically with these types of incidents. And getting that buy-in was a struggle, right? So, you know, meeting with police chiefs and directors and speaking to them and, and educating them on what had happened in the past and how to move past that and, and be more proactive and be able to provide better care was everything. And then once we finally got that buy-in, one of the big stumbling blocks that I found, and, and I don't know if you could relate to this, is getting that buy-in to trickle down through the ranks to the boots on the ground folks, because you can have a signature on a piece of paper, but that doesn't mean anything unless that trickles down and that there's training that exists with boots on the ground folks. Yeah. And you know, one of the things in any organization, especially law enforcement and fire and EMS, is that you know your your is only as current as the current leadership you have. You know, and leadership changes hands, and there there has to be a constant refresher uh, going on for new hires and people that are new to their roles. And that's the only way to do it. Unfortunately, that costs money, and money is always you know is always a problem within uh, within our industry. And you know, it, it's it's important enough that you don't have to answer those questions as a municipality as to why you didn't train on something that happens every day. And I think if that's just a mo if that's enough motivation to get you to train more frequently or at least talk about it, then that's what it has to be. Let's just talk about some of the uh, misnomers as it relates to this type of topic. There's always a lot of confusion between rescue task force and what that is and how is that different than SWAT medics or, or tactical operators? This is, a, this is a big confusing point to many folks. And I think it leads to a lot of people shutting the conversation down immediately. 
Maybe you can talk a little bit about how that differentiates as far as these roles. Yeah, you know, it's if you if you look at it from a mathematic standpoint, um, you look at SWAT, which are the highest trained uh, in most police departments, and then you also have SWAT medics, which is can be a hybrid of either law enforcement that have medical background or TIMS members, which are tactical emergency medical services members that are trained to a higher standard to be integrated with SWAT. So mathematically, there's less of those uh, practitioners than anything else in your service. Next, you have uh, line officers and regular line EMS and line fire, which you mathematically have more of them. Just like in Columbine, they realized that waiting for SWAT was a fail. And that's why they enacted the active shooter policies where law enforcement runs in, regardless of what their degree of training is. Um, so to, to differentiate, if you look at SWAT and TIMS, they're reserved for those high risk, highly volatile situations that they're specifically trained for and there's a little time. We wanna use your everyday law enforcement officer and your everyday EMT to be a force multiplier to form rescue task force. So rescue task force is after the shooting has stopped, started and it's already being addressed. Whereas now you have time to formulate teams to, uh, to matriculate your way into the, to the facility or wherever the, the crime is occurring to effect some rescue before that person's golden hour expires. And I think it's probably a more practical and pragmatic approach to this. Um, like you say, the force multiplier element is, is everything in this situation. So when you have SWAT operators and, and, and Thames medics and things like that, they're, they're detailed to a specific team, right? So they put together, you know, medical threat assessments and, and they do medic calls, doc calls for the operators. Rescue task force is completely different than that. And I think that that is something that needs to be addressed so that it does get legs and move forward in the sense that these are the providers that we're going to have moving downrange, applying tourniquets and doing wound packing and casualty collection points so that we cut down on lives lost from exsanguination and hemorrhage. And again, these are things that we're doing as medical providers that are not on an advanced level. So it really doesn't matter if you're a medic, an EMT, a first responder. It really ties into the whole bleeding control uh, campaign and element. And I think that that, in, in my opinion, is something that we really need to address more in the industry because, as you've told me, if you're just addressing this now, you're, you're far behind the eight ball. Yeah. Uh, I, I've often said in a lot of our trainings that, uh, you know, what you do with the rescue task force and trauma itself is a, a very simple fix in a complex environment. And the separation between being able to function within that complex environment is formulating the appropriate level team. The, the TIMS and the SWAT operators typically aren't there to, to look after the, the wounded. They're there on a mission of neutralizing the threat, stopping the, the bad guy or girl from making fresh victims. Your job is to get in there and help slow down people's life clock from expiring. And so it's, it's not rocket science. Like you said, examination, tourniquets, needles, whatever the case may be, a lot of BLS uh, effort, but it's the timing of it and how do you get that uh, skill set into that environment. I agree. But the question, Mike, is how do we get this to become a standard? You know, in my opinion, I look at this now as, as the question was always posed 
how do we make this work? Because there's such great liability involved in this. And and personally, from my perspective and, and the way that I approached this six years ago was, I feel you have more liability if you are unprepared or underprepared. And, uh, and I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that and maybe some of the ways that we you look to approach this as we move forward and we start to train because this is not just about active shooter. Any large scale incident that we respond to these days involve all disciplines. It's it's not, you know, this is a unified command approach. How are we going to start to break through those barriers and those walls and start to react and train and write policies and protocols together? And and first thing we'll address is the liability. At this stage of the game, you know, when I first I started Southeast Tactical in 2013, um, the question was liability. So if as, as a company or as a municipality, if we start to train on this, we're acknowledging that this potential exists, which makes us liable. Well, that was eight years ago. Now, there is no admonishing yourself from the liability that this is happening. It isn't happening in New York alone. It isn't hap- it's happening more so in rural areas than in urban areas. And so uh, you, you, you have to have something to address it because of what the protective service costs us. As far as how do we get this widespread across the country, you know, the IAFF, International Associate Firefighters, and other organizations in the EMS world have done their part, in my opinion, to try to get some standardization, at least some idea about the Rescue Task Force doctrine out there. Law enforcement has lagged behind because they're typically – uh, like to be the alphas in the in the environment, and they sometimes don't see the value. I think it has a start if it's going to be a national initiative. Is that on the law enforcement side, there's a little catch up. If there's no secret that EMS and fire is pretty good at incident command. Uh, law enforcement, admittedly, knows that they need some help with that. So I think for it to be national, EMS is doing a, a moderate moderate to good job, and law enforcement needs to play a little catch up. I, I think you just hit on a very important topic. I agree 100%. And I think that if you ask uh, the majority of law enforcement folks, they'll tell you flat out that incident command is not their thing. And I think that aside from teaching somebody to be a rescue task force uh, operator or being part of a rescue task force platform, all intents and purposes, that's an easy process. You're, you're, you're putting a tourniquet on, you're packing a wound, you're doing those things. The command and control portion of that is everything. And I think that if you start to break that down, and I think it's happening, believe me, I think it's happening a lot more than I'm even giving it credit for. But if these ASIM courses and ATERC courses, if you start to look at this, the, the way law enforcement is, are, is approaching these types of incidents, whether it be a fifth man concept or contact teams with follow on rescue task force capabilities, once you start to introduce that and people start looking at that command structure, it shows that that command structure is all inclusive, right? So like you said before, even Columbine waiting on SWAT, well, that was a, that was a fail. Right. And so then you start to implement, get away from the perimeter type thing and, and, and address the contact teams. Well, I think now you're starting to see people say, oh, well, staging EMS five to six blocks away, right? And await, and awaiting for them to be evac'd out by law enforcement to a casualty collection. It's just not practical. It's not anything that's going to increase survivability. So I think that that controlling and that command, that that incident management command structure is so important to getting this off the ground and driving it home. And, and you know, we, we go back to what you alluded to before, that if you're still struggling with this, you know, the real big picture 
is that what we've seen here in America of these active shooters is, is, is domestic terrorism. It's, it's local. And we can never take our eye off of the ball that there's a big, bad world out there overseas that at some point in time will export that here. And the, 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 the Mumbai type scenarios and the complex coordinated terrorist attacks. We have to get past this, the, the, the elementary uh, stages of active shooter to prepare ourselves for the big one, which is inevitable that it'll come. It, it will come. It has come. And I think that a lot of uh, agencies can take a lot out of many of these after action reports that have come out from these larger scale, high profile active shooter incidents, where in many of them, rescue task force capabilities were available and they were pushed back. You know, Parkland shooting was a, a perfect instance, right, where Rescue Task Force said, we're here, we're ready to engage, we're ready to enter, and they were pushed back. The, the more times that things like that are exposed, I think, creates a better opportunity for Rescue Task Force to become prevalent, more prevalent, I should say. And so as we look to educate ourselves as an industry, we're looking for that buy-in from law enforcement. Well, they're, they're doing the reading. They're doing these after-action reports. Uh, they're, they're reviewing them, and they're seeing it. It's not anything like we're looking to jump in and take over anything. We're looking to increase survivability and do it in a, in a, in a very effective and managed way. So, Mike, I really do appreciate you coming on with me today to discuss this really important topic. I thought it was important because it's really time to start dusting off those plans that you had in place prior to the pandemic. Let's be honest, COVID fatigue is real. We're tired of it, but it also just took over everything with us. And as I've said, we're always, we've always been a very reactionary type industry, right? We're, we're reacting to what we're dealing with. So I think now is time to get a grasp of what is going on and what's to come. And I hope, I hope that you're wrong, but unfortunately you make all the points that, you know, show that we're in a bad way. And, and I'll, I'll end it with this. You have to know your friends before game day. You have to know, you have to know your EMS and your law enforcement partners within your community before it actually happens. It just won't work unless you at least met one another and have some familiarity with how you each operate. No question, Mike. Training and familiarity builds trust. So thanks again for coming on. Again, thank you to Graham Medical for sponsoring this podcast. Graham Medical is your source of the original Mega Mover Portable Transport Unit product line. Visit Graham Medical at GrahamMedical.com. Thank you to Michael Wright, and thank you for listening. This is another episode of EMS World Podcasts. And remember, we will see you live at EMS World Expo, October 4th to the 8th. Make sure you're there in person. Can't wait to see you and celebrate together finally. This is EMS World Podcast. See you on another one. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.